Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 335 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hi, everybody. And I am Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to discuss billing models. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So you decide to be a freelancer and you know that you're going to do some work and you know that you're going to get paid. But there are many different ways to get paid, and each has its upsides and its downsides. So we're going to go through a bunch of these today and just sort of think about how you can charge for your services in different ways. Um, and I don't know about you, Eric, but I have all sorts of mistakes that I've made over the years <laughs> that, that I'd be happy to share with people so they can avoid certain billing models. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so... So why don't we kick this off by talking about how we build currently for our services, and, that, and then we can go through other things, um, and that, that sort of other other ways that might be more common, popular, good, bad, and so forth. So why don't you start with uh, why, why don't you kick us off and then start start off with telling telling everyone how you bill for your work, Eric? All right. So these days I have income kind of from two primary sources. First and foremost. Um, uh, we have taken the blogging practice um, that I had as just kind of a random freelance thing and turned it into a proper business, which I've talked about here before. That's Hit Subscribe. And in terms of how I draw income through Hit Subscribe, Hit Subscribe is an LLC in the United States that uh, files as an S Corp. So I actually get paid a salary through it. Um, you know, as the business owner, um, I'm also an employee technically. So I get a salary and I also take what are called owner's draws or distributions. Um, that's one primary way of earning money. The way that hit subscribe bills its clients is through a series of flat rate uh, offerings, blog posts, white papers. We give clients quotes and that's just the price. And, um, you know, they requisition these things and then pay us. Um, I guess to say a little bit more about that, typically we bill up front for what we're doing. So, um, we'll invoice and, uh, once the client pays the invoice, then we, um, you know, render the services and we get money. And then, um, you know, I guess that's kind of end to end how I earn money through this business. The other main umbrella is my consultancy dead tech. And that is, I won't bother going into how that's structured, but the way that dead tech, which is just me, um, the way I tend to bill through there anymore is just flat rate. Like I don't really ever do anything by the hour. Um, I have kind of, uh, narrowed down what I'm doing to a very stock set of offerings around doing assessments of clients' application portfolios. And I just have like, you know, um, a standard operating procedure and a, a flat service that I offer. So 
that wasn't always true, but like, I guess the, the way I could summarize this most quickly is to say that everything I do has a price and I charge that price. And usually I bill either entirely upfront or I'll say something like 50% upfront and 50% on the back end. Um, so everything I do that way is actually really simple these days. Um, so that's me today. How about you? Okay. Um, so yeah, so I'm mostly now doing training, which is um, also flat rate. Although here and there, people try to like negotiate me to different things and there are all sorts of other things, but like for the most part, it's a flat rate. Um, and I have not gotten up the guts to ask any of my clients to pay me up front. Um, and I also sort of figure they're generally largish companies, so they're not going to stiff me or at least not stiff me too much. So, um, I mean, I, I build this. So basically on the last day of the class, I'll typically send them an invoice for the course and then I'll get paid typically a month or two later, net plus 30, net plus 60. So in fact, let me, let me just define some of these terms. So like when you go and if, <laughs> when you start freelancing, you probably think, okay, right? So I'm going to do some work for someone. And after I do the work, they'll send me a check or they'll do a bank transfer or whatever it is, or hand me cash in the dead of the night. I don't recommend that by the way. So basically, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, um, it typically doesn't work that way. And first of all, as you've already heard, just from the two of us, like starting to talk about this, there are many, many, many different models. And anyone who says there's only one way to do it is probably wrong or naive or whatever. Um, but a typical one that I found, at least with large companies that they like, doesn't mean it's to my advantage, but they like it, is what would be called net plus 30 or net plus 60. And that means if I do work on, let's see, we're recording this in mid-June. So if I do work on June 15th, um, so net plus 30 would mean that they go to the end of the month, or I guess the beginning of the next month, so that's the beginning of July, and then another 30 days, so that's the beginning of August, and that's when I'll get paid. So if I do work in June, I get paid August 1st. If I do if net plus 60, then if I do work in June, I get paid September 1st. And if you're thinking, oh my God, that's nuts. <laughs> I won't get paid for a long time. This is one of the advantages of getting paid upfront, that you don't need to chase them down. And you have the money in your pocket. You don't have you're not basically lending money to the world's largest corporations or even to all sorts of startups. Um, and so it's definitely, if you can if you can get people to pay you upfront, I think that is a fantastic thing. And as I said, I've just been like, not I haven't had the guts for it. Truth be told, I've tried on a few occasions with some of my Israeli clients to ask to be paid uh, like a week later. And they're like, no, no, no. Our standard procedure is to pay net plus 30, net plus 60. Um, and mm. while I'm usually not a fan of standard procedure being an excuse, I basically have enough work coming in each month that some of it's earlier, some of it's later, and it all sort of balances out. Yeah, I could, you know, with hit subscribe having something like 50 contractors now that we're paying, the this is our standard procedure is something I understand a lot better because basically we tell everybody that I think it's the second Saturday of the month we, we pay contractors for the past month. And to do otherwise, like to keep track of uh, 50 invoices that were coming in. Um, we have a director of finance and operations, uh, Angela, um, to keep track of 50 different people's invoices and when, when they were sending them and to pay them that way, she would do nothing but that. So like batching up uh, that person's work is something I get and at, at a bigger enterprise. Um, I, I understand that would be quite a mammoth task. So like, I understand it. I think it's good if the company makes that clear upfront like you know we we tell contractors that as part of the onboarding materials for authors like this is how payment works um because i think too like i've had a lot of firsthand experience witnessing people like 
almost everybody has worked some kind of salaried ish job, even if it was, you know, in school or, you know, even if you go freelance almost immediately in your career, odds are at some point you've worked a job, you know, at Burger King or, or whatever. And typically those jobs are going to be direct deposit or they're cutting you a physical check and you work for two weeks. And the most common thing, at least in the U.S., I can't speak for other places, is that you get a biweekly paycheck and that hits your bank account something like five business days after the end of the so-called work period. And if that's all you've ever known, you're in for a real shock when you go uh, when you go <laughs> off on your own because you kind of get used to, you know, work is done and then within a week I get payment for that and that's just not how it works. Some people expect that and are, you know, almost negatively surprised like um, with whoever their first freelance clients are. Like, what do you mean? You're not going to pay me until August. Um so that's a, a thing of adjustment, and I think it's a good thing to understand if you're a new freelancer or if you're an aspiring freelancer that there is this um, this gap. So what will happen is you quit your job, you hang out your shingle, you're excited to start making money. Expect to have a couple of months. I mean, you should probably have more, but expect to have a couple of months money in the bank because you're going to incur this lag where you're doing work for a month or two, but you don't see, start to see money until after a month or two, and that is uh, – you know, sometimes a shock. So like if we're giving brand new people advice, that is the first piece of advice I would give is prepare for that, that there's a good chance you're not going to see money quickly. Um, especially cause you can do, and, and maybe we'll talk about this a little later. You can do things like ask for money upfront, but your success at doing that is going to have a lot to do with how much business and leverage you have. And usually out of the gate, that's almost none. So that's a hard thing to negotiate if you're not used to doing it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. So we've got – oh, by the way, I, sh I should add, I do have other things that I do. Like the main other thing is I've got my online courses and that is completely the opposite of what I just described with the big companies where that sounds like similar to what you're doing where I do payment upfront. Meaning it's like all these online courses and books that you've bought, dear reader or dear listener. Like basically you, you pay the money to the credit card and magically the site opens up and allows you to – watch the course, download the book, whatever it would be. And so there I get the money right away. Um, or I should say like my my PayPal or my Stripe account gets the money right away and then it goes into my bank account a week or so later. Um, or not my bank account, my company's bank account and I pay myself salary and so on and so forth. So we, and, and then I sometimes do some uh, consulting work. Nowadays it's been pretty rare over the last few years and that either I do on a fixed price basis or I'll even and I hope Jonathan's not listening. I'll even sometimes do hourly work. <laughs> it, it it sort of depends on um, sort of depends on the client and history and what's going to happen. So already, just in these like first few minutes of us describing how we do our work, you can already see like a few things coming out. So we've already mentioned um, flat rate. We've already mentioned hourly rates. And and my impression, by the way, when I started consulting, was that everyone does hourly rates. And my impression was that because, first of all, that's what I've always heard, right? Oh, how much do you charge per hour? And that's what sort of the buzz was. But you don't have to do it that way at all. Um, you can choose a different way to do it. And indeed, flat rate has some major advantages, such as, as again, Jonathan will be happy to point out, where like the incentives are more aligned, where you're not uh, going to try to, whether explicitly or implicitly or consciously or subconsciously, pad the hours. And they don't feel like, oh, my God, this person is taking so long and now I'm paying them for that. Um, you're paying for the value you're giving. The downside, of course, is if or one of the downsides is if you underestimate massively, uh, 
oh boy, that's going to be a hard lesson. And uh, that w- that's what got me off of, um, in fact, uh, fixed price for many years um, until I started doing more productized stuff where it's easier to deal with. Yeah. I mean, so what I would say to that is um, I'm, I think there's kind of a few vectors here to talk about. Like, so one of them is, you know, what are your invoicing terms? Do you pre-bill? Do you send an invoice and say do upon receipt? There's net 30, net 60. So that kind of has to do with the timing of how you're sending um, invoices. And, you know, perhaps we can talk about that in a little more detail later. But what we're talking about here is the core of the billing model, which is, how are you reasoning about the cost and pricing of the services, productized services or products that you offer? And so there I think of um, and uh, point out if I miss one here, but I think of kind of three main modes. There's the hourly billing model, which I think is what by and large people are going to do when they first leave the workforce, because that's how you've been paid throughout your career. You show up for 40 hours a week and you get paid some certain salary for those hours. And so when you go off on your own, it's easiest for you to kind of keep that going. And it's also easiest for companies where you can go off on your own as a freelancer and sort of act as, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way, but kind of a pseudo employee where you're a, a staff augmentation uh, maybe getting placed through an agency to do uh, staff augmentation, software development work, things of that nature. So there's a very natural transition, in especially in the early stages of freelancing to bill by the hour, because you're not going to figure all this out in one shot. Um, the other two models being what I think of as what hit subscribe does, which is I'll just call this flat pricing. And then there's uh, what Jonathan talks a lot, the idea of like value pricing, where you're doing a custom project and you work with the buyer to figure out, you know, how much extra revenue does it stand to generate them or how much cost is it going to save them? And then you kind of agree to, you know, a fair figure based on that. I differentiate that with what hit subscribe does because our price points are such that, you know, you're going to pay 500 plus dollars for a blog post or whatever the case may be. Um, That's a flat price. And we're not necessarily figuring out the value to the customer because we have a lot of different customers and that wouldn't be expedient at that price point. So based kind of on our cost and what seems to be fair market value, we just say this is what it costs, take it or leave it. So I see those kind of value flat and hourly as the three main models. Um, And the other two, flat pricing and um, value-based pricing, are sort of tough to figure out right out of the gate. And uh, to your point, Reuven, the... If you get them wrong, it can really cost you. Like that's a, a high risk thing. Hourly billing externalizes your risk. Um, those other two models don't. So if you are badly wrong about how long something is going to take you, and you quote a flat price, you can really get yourself into trouble there. Yeah, I mean, one of the first consulting gigs that I had. So when I mean, my uh, I, I had a full time job at Time Warner in New York, and when I came to Israel and started my consulting shop, they said, oh, well, we'll be your first clients. And um, at some point, I got hooked up with some department inside of Time Warner to help them with web stuff. And somehow I agreed to do it on a project basis, meaning like a flat price basis. Um, Mm. And I was young and naive and didn't quite know how to push back or to monitor things. And basically, I just got railroaded into doing an incredible amount of work for that initial flat price. And I remember at some point I realized, oh my God, this is crazy. And I got some combination of angry and upset um, with them on the phone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and um, you know, I, I think there was some crying involved and it was not on their part. And I think that's when they realized, 
okay, we need to talk about this. And that's when I realized, boy, I really should have talked about this a long time ago. Uh, and we reached an agreement and then we kept working together for a few years. But that was definitely like it, it reached a breaking point where I said, like, I, I can't I can't afford to keep doing all this for this flat price. Um, yeah, and that really burned me on the idea. Uh, by the way, I, I, I would I would agree with you that flat pricing and value pricing are distinct from our perspective, but I'm not sure how distinct they seem from the client's perspective. Right. Like they're not going to say, oh, you're doing, you know, you're doing all this discussion with us of how much it's worth and we're going to come up with a value from their perspective. At least in Israel, people are like very sort of practical about this. Am I paying you by the hour or am I paying you by the project? End of story, um, which might explain why they're not so into value pricing either. So my take on that is by and large, yes, um, the, it's incumbent upon you as the service provider or the productized service provider um, to make it clear to them that value pricing is happening. And what I mean by this is I can recall having done back when I used to do custom projects, having done value pricing and what you wind up with. And I'm trying to, th I, I can't think of a good example that I'm confident I should share. So I've got to kind of talk in generalities, but what you wound up with is something like, um, Hey, uh, enterprise, you have this, let's say $10 million uh, program that seems to be getting off the rails. I'm going to come in and do an assessment and give you some remediation um, suggestions and kind of a playbook on how to recover this $10 million program. So it's not a wash um, or it's not a complete total. So it seems to me like in order to recover your $10 million program, you know, that would be worth a hundred thousand dollars to you. And that's kind of a, a simplistic example, but what I've found is that the times I am doing value-based uh, quoting like that, it, it's kind of clear where they're saying, yeah, fair enough, um, where you can kind of drill through to how much money is on the line. And then if you're asking for, you know, a single digit percent cut of that, it's kind of hard for them to push back and argue. So what I could do, like in this hypothetical example, say I'm saving this $10 million program uh, with my services and I ask for $100,000. Um, if I just went to them and said, you know, I didn't externalize any of that discussion. I just said, all right, I'll do this for $100,000. I could see them coming back and saying, well, how do you get to that price? How many hours are you going to spend? And so on and so forth. But if it's, you know, I think through discussion, we're agreeing that you stand to save uh, this amount of money. So it seems only fair for me to uh, collect this percentage or whatever. I think that tends to mitigate arguments, at least in uh, my experience. Hmm. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. But um, I will say, you know, uh, I feel like if he were on here, Jonathan would certainly weigh in on this count too. It takes a lot of practice um, at getting to those conversations. Like, um, now pretty much all I do is these portfolio assessments when I consult, but for years and years I did IT management consulting. So I was constantly having conversations about the value of programs with executives. That's not something you just immediately pick up. It takes practice and some skill and it's uncomfortable and weird at first, because if you're coming from a world where you're just given assignments and you complete them, you're not used to, and people aren't used to you doing this where you're turning around and saying like, well, actually, you know, let's talk about the dollars being spent at the executive level. So I mentioned this for those of you out there to understand, this isn't something you should just be expected to know how to do coming right out of a salary job or, you know, whatever you've been doing. Yeah. I mean, I've done value pricing only a handful of times and it was only after trying it a few times and getting rebuffed that it actually worked. And 
it, it was like it was like magic to me. But it definitely it it, it was not going to happen right out of the gate for sure. Not. Yeah. Um. So so what about retainers? Um. Those are sort of like this hybrid of flat pricing and hourly pricing. I mean, I, and, and there are different definitions for retainers, right? So I, yeah, I've I was going to say we should talk because <laughs> different people toss that around to mean different things. So, like, I've done retainer where, like, for example, um, I had this client for a number of years, and I was working for him hourly. And at a certain point, we said, you know what? I'm working about twenty hours a week for him. So let's just call it like let's just have him pay me per month what would be the equivalent of twenty hours per per week. So I guess it's what like eighty hours a month. And if it goes up a little, and if it goes down a little, who cares? Like, I'll eat the, uh, you know, each of us will eat the the time or money as appropriate. I realize that's not everyone's definition of retainer, but that definitely, um, I, I'd say that's a not unusual circumstance. A different kind of retainer is, you. Pay, it's like an insurance policy, right? So they're paying a premium. They're paying, I don't know, $1,000 a month to you every month in the first of the month. So that if they run into some problem, they can call you and they might call you zero hours and they might call you a hundred hours. And as with insurance, the, you're going to assume that most of the time you don't need to answer that call or the call won't exist. But if it does, boy, oh boy, you'd better answer quickly. So those are the two kinds I can think of. Are there, are there others or, or, and, and have you done any of these? Um, I have done, you know, the first one, I don't, I haven't historically thought of that as a retainer where it's sort of like, well, you know, it seems like most months I do somewhere between 15 and 25 hours. So let's call it 20-ish hours a month for, you know, uh, this flat fee. I more think of that as like a, um, that you're going from hourly billing to like weekly or monthly billing. Um, but this isn't to say it's right or wrong. I've just never historically thought of that arrangement as a retainer. I never thought of that. That was weekly billing. Huh. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so the second model you were describing, I may have done something like that at times where like you can use, oh, actually, yes, I have done something like this where it's kind of like you're going to pay me a flat rate every month and I'll just um, be available for uh, however much you need me. Like in terms, so I've done this with, uh, management and strategy consulting where um, I think for the duration of a project, I had a client that would pay me, I don't know, $2,000 a month. And I'd say, um, you know, any of the following people in your organization can give me a call anytime they want. So if you don't call me at all for a month, it's $2,000. If you're on the phone with me for 20 hours a week that month, you know, $2,000. Now, the reason you restrict the people that can call you is because usually your buyers for this might be executives or managers. And these are the sort of people that don't have time to be with uh, on the phone with you for 20 hours a week. And so it's not that you're trying to kind of wring more money out of them. It's a natural safeguard against um, spending way more time than you bargained for. And it also kind of dovetails nicely in that, like, if these people are making time to call you, it's pretty important. Um, so I've had an arrangement like that. I'm trying to think the other, you know, I think of the retainer in sort of the most classical sense maybe as being an amount of money. Like I think high end lawyers bill this way. It's an amount of money that you pay simply to be able to have access to the services of a professional who may be booked out for months on end. So it's kind of compensation for the opportunity cost of keeping your calendar a little bit open. So in this arrangement, um, 
if you were a really, really sought after professional for, you know, some sort of opinion, um, like uh, Troy Hunt, who's like really famous in the security space, might be able to bill this way, where he'd say to some clients, like, look, I am booked out for like six months, but if you pay me $1,000 a month, if you give me a call, I will then engage with you and start the clock, you know, on hourly or however I bill. Um, so that's another model that I've heard of. Have, are you familiar with that or have you seen that or done that? I've never done that. I think I might have heard of it here and there. But um, I mean, I, I, I think your point about making sure to restrict who can call you is such a good one. Because like, I, I think I've never really done that sort of retainer before. Um, I think I've talked to people about it on occasion, but it's never actually come to fruition. And my panic has always been, well, wait a second, I'm basically giving myself up as like a toll-free number, unlimited access per month to anyone at this company. And so that come so so restricting it and restricting to people whose time is worth a ton. I, I like the way you said that. It means if they're calling you, it is important. Um, yeah. And you'll typically have to give like some sort of, I will respond to you within X hours or, you know, well, there'd be hours, if it's days or weeks, and they're probably not going to be paying you that much. That is a good point. Like I've, I, this is an arrangement I've done before. And I also, yes, did write into the uh, uh, contract or proposal or whatever um, that number one, here are the people that can call me as much as they want. And yeah, number two, um, I can't guarantee you I'll respond that day or, you know, but I defined some kind of SLA and said like, you know, if I'm not available, I'll make time for you within one business day or something. This episode is sponsored by Paymo. You can check them out at paymoapp.com and they are a terrific tool for tracking projects, keeping track of time and sending out invoices. So if you're looking for a solution that's sort of an all-in-one solution, that allows you to do all of those things, to keep track of time, manage tasks, get paid as a freelancer, then check it out. If you're part of a larger team, they also have a team solution that allows you to manage projects across everybody, track all the time across everybody, and then send out the invoices the same way. It runs on Windows and Mac, and it works really, really great. You can get the task management view that's kind of like a Trello board. The time tracking is terrific, and you can look at uh, timesheet view, you can also just keep track of the time and see where everything went to. Um, there is a terrific uh, timesheet report and you can also work on scheduling with your team and everything else. And then, like I said, you just send out invoices. Plus they've got a terrific API so that if you need to integrate with other things like the Adobe Creative Suite or G Suite, which is uh, email and things like that, uh, you can do that too. And it also uses Zapier. So if you need to automate things through there, it's terrific. Just go check them out at paymoapp.com. You know, I'll say this, and, and maybe I'll throw a pick to this one at the end. Um, a great resource to read about that style of engagement is the book Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss. Um, so you, I think there's one or more chapters that talk about retainer type consulting. And there's a lot in there about like billing models. And the book is called Million Dollar Consulting because it's... Um, intended to speak to getting yourself as a solo consultant to billing seven figures a year. And it's pretty fascinating. You know, I read that book a good number of years ago. And I basically remember saying to myself, that guy's ridiculous. Like, okay. <laughs> he's like, he's talking about fancy corporate consultants, not me. And I, I, I probably should reread it. I'm positive. I have it on my shelf here just because I think that now that I've sort of been through it for a number of years, 
I can look at his advice with more perspective and say, oh, well, X and Y and Z are totally realistic and good strategies I should try. And but A and B and C, forget it. Like, you know, it's just not appropriate for me, even if it's appropriate for someone else. All right. I definitely have to yeah. relook at that book. Uh, yeah. And I'll say to anyone listening out there, if you're really early on in your journey, like you just left a nine to five job and you've hung out your shingle and you're getting business through Upwork or something, a lot of what he says in that book will seem pretty far fetched. Um, but I can speak to this, especially having been a management and strategy consulting. Um, it is a playbook that is achievable. Like you can um, earn incredibly high bill rates as you go and do some of the things that he's talking about. Um, it's not an easy path. There aren't a lot of people that do that, but it is doable. Um, and there's a lot of good things to consider in there, even if you you know fully realize that you're you're not going to be at this point within six months giving advice to CIOs and flying around the country and the things he's talking about. So let's say someone comes, so, so how about this? How do you choose a bill, billing model? And my point is, do you vary it according to your clients? Do you vary according to the kind of work you do? Um, do you just sort of experiment? Like if someone comes to you with Project X, like how do you decide which of these billing models to apply? And I realize that nowadays you, you seem to have like one billing model or more or less one as, as do I. But back in the day, how, how would you decide what to do? Uh, what happened to me, to be honest, over the course of freelancing is I left the workforce and the only thing I could really conceive of was hourly billing. Um, so what I did was, you know, in the beginning, I just it didn't occur to me that I would ever do anything else. Because like you were saying, um, the idea of quoting a flat rate to me, that sounded like fixed bid, which is what like desperate agencies did to try to like undercut hourly agencies or something. Um, and it wasn't kind of until I started, I don't even remember where I started kind of getting more information about the thing that, um, you know, Jonathan and lots of us talk about in this space. Like I started being exposed to some of these other ideas and they started to resonate with me. And I think that what I started to do was experimentally try things like, you know, um, raise my, or give an estimate that was like well over what I actually thought it would be, but tell them prospective buyer, like, this seems expensive, but I'll do it for a flat rate. You never have to worry. Um, so I think there was a good deal of like experimentation to try to get away from hourly billing because the thing that I would bump up against is there's kind of a ceiling on that. Like I was able to bypass a little by going from like app dev to doing more training, strategy consultant, IT management consulting, that type of consulting, you know, getting up over $200 an hour is no problem. If you're just kind of doing app dev, I think getting a lot more than 150 is hard because, um, you know, that's what like large agencies charge for app dev. So um, that's a long way of saying that I didn't really have a strategy. Now, if I could go back and, you know, tutor myself from like six, seven years ago, I probably would have a strategy, but you know, uh, full disclosure, I really didn't. It was just kind of hearing about these things and then seeing that it seemed like a better way and bumbling my way through. Like, I'm curious. So how did you, you know, did you start out doing the training more as an hourly thing? Like how, what was your progression like? Yeah. Well, I mean, like when I started consulting, I also did hourly and I've basically stuck with hourly since because I've done that much, you know, development consulting for a while. And I, I, I reached that same ceiling that you did. And I was trying to convince people, oh, but I'm so experienced and so good. And some people will accept that. And some people will be like, yeah, I don't care how good you are. I'm getting people for a third the price. Um, 
And I, I actually remember looking through, I think it was from like 1996, when one of my consulting clients asked me to do training. And I have the email in which I say to them, well, I charge X per hour. So I'll just charge you, you know, 8X for one day of training, one day of training. And I don't think like it never occurred to me there's <laughs> preparation time, it comes from a different budget, you can charge differently. This is a weird mm. way to build for training. Like like all these things are so obvious now, and they were not at that point because again, the only model I had was the hourly model or those crazy people doing fixed price, and that was either slimy <laughs> or gonna get you like bankrupt really fast. Yeah. Um, the other, the other thing about hourly billing is that everyone sort of accepts it, right? Like if you go to a yeah. law, if you go to a lawyer, they will often bill you by the hour. I mean, typically at least in Israel and my experience in the U.S. as well, like they'll bill you, by, bill you by the hour. And you go to, I mean, my accountant charges me a fixed rate per month, fine, but like many professionals charge by the hour, so it's not totally crazy talk when you go to a company and you say I charge X by the hour. They're like, oh, that's what I expect. It doesn't mean it's ever in everyone's interest but it is at least a model they're familiar with. And so since everyone's familiar with it, fine. And when you talk to other consultants and you sort of compare billing rates, it's typically going to be by the hour. And so that gives you a yardstick of um, you know, whether you're on target or not. So um, yeah, it's very easy to get into that, but it's way better when you're not doing it. It just takes time to figure out how to do that and how people are going to respond. Like, Again, if I were to do develop, go to company X and offer them to do offer to do development on an hourly basis, they'd be fine with it. But that same company X, if I were to offer like a course on an hourly basis, they would give me a really funny look. Like, what what kind of billing basis is this? <laughs> so find out for what you're doing what the expectations are, and if you're going to move away from those, which is fine, just have a good answer for it. Like John has a ton of stuff in his book about you know how how do you respond when someone says but, 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 but to all of your non-hourly billing stuff. Yeah, that will happen. I mean, like hourly billing is the corporate lingua franca. So, I mean, unless, unless you were like trying to sell some good, you know, based on your hourly labor, but like for, for labor, that's what everybody's used to. So if you go and you say, I'm going to do some custom application development for you and, um, you know, my hourly rate is such and such, whether the company buys from you, whether they think your hourly rate is appropriate, setting aside all of that, they will understand and they will have a framework with which to compare you against other service providers. So you come and tell them you'll do it for 120 an hour. They've got another person that they like maybe a little bit better, but he wants 150 an hour. And so this is something that people consuming services are used to dealing with, as are probably a lot of you listening. You know, if you have somebody prepare your taxes or if you've retained an attorney, um, you know, there are a lot of like service providers that bill you by the hour. And so you kind of think like, how much do I like them versus how cheap are they? Um, what's been my experience? Um, but if you get away from that style of billing, it can be a real differentiator too. Cause like, for instance, especially running this business, like we've got people doing our taxes and these different service providers. And I hate consuming things by the hour because I go to the tax guys and I say, all right, you know, how much are the business's taxes going to cost this year? And they say, well, I don't know, probably this amount, but like if I have to work more, like, you know, these are not things I care about and they're opaque to me. So what I'm really hearing is, you know, I don't know, I'll, I'll let you know when I send you a check. And when you're on the consuming end of that, that's not a fun thing to hear. And that's where things get contentious when it comes to perceived scope creep or did you really need to do this or that? 
So if you can give up somebody consuming your services a fixed rate, the big differentiator, the big advantage right out of the gate is that they're going to say, oh, okay, well, at least, you know, I have certainty here. I know what this is going to cost and I can plan. And if you, so I guess if I think of like how you might evolve your billing model over the course of time, if you start, you know, to specialize in something, you know, in Reuven's case, training, in my case, uh, code-based assessments, you start to really understand it. You understand your costs. You It's predictable in terms of how you deliver it. And so it's kind of easy to transition into a lower risk activity where you go to the client and you say confidently, you know, here's what I charge for this. And, you know, I'm not going to throw open my books to you, but I have the following costs and I have to charge this in order to earn a margin. And they kind of stop arguing with you. So like, even if they don't want to consume the service, unlike with hourly billing, they're not going to come back and say like, oh, that's crazy. You know, how can you blah, blah, blah. You say, look, I have a process and I follow it and I have this cost and I want to earn this margin. So that's that. Um, So I think really, if you want to evolve to these other models, you have to kind of start developing some expertise, some repeatability, uh, your kind of patented, and I use that word in quotes, way of doing things. Um, Because if you're just doing like custom application development in a different domain every time, I I think it's borderline impossible to do anything much but hourly billing. I mean, maybe if they were expensive enough, you could value price it, but you couldn't develop like a fixed price that you just charged over and over again and got more efficient at delivering because you're never doing the same thing over and over again. Right, right. And that's the whole thing with projectized consulting where because you're doing the same thing again and again, you get better at it or more efficient at it. Like, I don't think I teach faster. Um, I, I speak quickly <laughs> enough, right? But I, I do think that because I teach the same courses again and again, that they're more effective and they're better. Um, and if you have someone who, I don't know, configures routers or does AWS optimization, right, that person is definitely going to get both better and probably faster what they do over time. And so you don't care. Like, you're just going to pay them for that product, for, for the result, not for the time they're putting into it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, one thing I hear when I when I give people this bit of advice, like, here's how to kind of make your business more predictable. Um, you can deliver things for the same cost and or for the same price and get more and more efficient so that your, you know, business improves. Uh, I think a thing that a lot of people who are used to doing, you know, in the software world, like custom app dev, but like, if you do a lot of different projects, you know, this would apply to designers and other professionals too. I hear people say, I think that would get so boring to do the same thing over and over again, which is totally understandable. But like, I almost have to laugh when I hear it because you're delivering the same result over and over again. You're not always doing the same things over and over again. You're getting more efficient. You're achieving mastery. You're bringing in new technologies and capabilities to make you more efficient. So like, I think people confuse the same deliverable in a predictable way with like always doing the exact same activities. And so I want to say that like, if you start to niche and specialize and deliver something with a flat cost, that doesn't mean you're making your life boring. I'll, I'll go even further that. Like I do do the same thing many times, right? Like my intro Python course is roughly the same. And I give it, I don't know, a good 20 times a year, 20 is an exaggeration. Let's say 10, 15 times a year. Um, but okay, it's it's like, you know, actors put on the same plays many times in a row. Um, you try to improve it here, you try to improve it there. Like I see it as a game, like how can I make it more effective each time? 
And mm. that's also why I offer many different courses. If I offered only one, oh my God, I'd probably go stir crazy because it would be too repetitive. Um, so you, you find ways, but like, and by the way, I was one of these people who said, if you only do one thing, you're gonna get really bored. I'm not bored, not at all, uh, not a problem, at least not for me. Yeah, um, I mean, I think just with anything you do, like the, especially the sort of people that are doing, you know, these types of like skilled trades, um, part of what you do is with whatever you're working on as a software developer, I can say this for sure. Like anything that I'm working on, I'm always thinking kind of subconsciously, like, could I automate this? Could I make this more efficiently? Like, it doesn't matter what it is. Even if it's something you've worked with a lot, that game is still going to be running in your head. You're still going to be finding keyboard shortcuts and, you know, whatever it is that makes it faster and better. Oops. I'll also add that um, clients don't talk to each other very much about your billing rates or your billing styles. So if you, and I tried this uh, in different ways, if you want to raise your rates, you can totally talk to different people. When a new client calls, you can say, oh yes, and my rate is, and they have no way of knowing whether this is exactly what you charge everyone or something totally new or something that you've you know, run a random number generator on. Again, not something I really recommend. Um, but you can also <laughs> you can also try different models, right? So at some point, I remember someone called me up and said, we need you to do X and Y and Z. And I said, oh, well, let's try a weekly billing model. And it worked. And it worked for them. And this was my first experience doing that. And so they didn't talk to anyone else and found, find out how much I normally was charging per hour, what was involved. So I would encourage you to sort of use your new clients, and especially new clients that you think you can lose if they dislike it. Use them as guinea pigs. And if you get the mm. job, fantastic. If you don't, well, you didn't need them anyway. So again, this is like not the sort of thing you want to do when you're just starting off and when you really need the money. Then you shouldn't play these sorts of games. But when you have a bit of leeway, then you can start to uh, adjust and, and try different things and see what the reactions are. I'll also add that moving from hourly billing to fixed billing is hard, if not impossible. Um, and so you probably should not aim to do that. So the the thing that just occurred to me and you saying, like, I think that's such a great point of, you know, like use new clients as guinea pigs, whether it's a raising of your rates or a change in billing model. That is a great point. And, and what I want to emphasize, and this may seem uh, like another new concept if you're going um, into freelancing for the first time, but like, I, I can't speak to other countries. I don't know if this is true, but in the U.S. there's laws that say like, I mean, I mean, there are exceptions to them, like senior discounts and stuff. But by and large, a retail store can't just charge different prices for items in the store depending on who walks in. That's illegal. Um, that does not apply to you as a service professional. You can charge your clients different rates, uh, different hourly rates. You can charge them different amounts for the same service and so on and so forth. And especially in the case of raising rates, that's perfectly fine. And honestly, nobody's really going to complain because you can tell that even if they were to talk, which Reuven is right, they do not. I have never had this come up. Um, but even if they were to, and the new client you were charging $500 for the same service you were just charging 400 your old clients for, you could tell the new client, look, I have enough business that I can't take on new clients at the old rate. And if the old clients found it amiss, you could say, hey, I'm grandfathering you into a lower rate. And there's really no way for either one of them to complain. So like the long story short is, feel free to experiment with your pricing and things of that nature without feeling guilty or like you're doing something unfair or wrong. I never even thought about the legality of stuff. So I'm glad you've put me at ease <laughs> that we don't need to worry about it. Um, 
And, and I, I wonder, I mean, I guess I know Amazon, for example, gives different prices to different people. They do all sorts of playing games with it. But I guess because they're doing it based on algorithm um, and algorithms can never be racist, right? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess they're allowed to get away with it because they're just sort of experimenting. You know, there's like a fascinating undercurrent in the U.S. is a very brief aside, but like all sorts of things like the kind of uh, like coupon clipping and grocery discount rewards are all very much designed to allow discriminated pricing, meaning um, you can capture as the grocery stores, the clients who are really into being savings uh, and thrift conscious and the ones who don't care. You those coupon clipping programs are all designed to get people who care less to pay more. Um, I, I find that all kind of fascinating. So it's funny you mentioned this. So I was just in the U.S. last month and I, I saw my parents and they're like, oh, and there's this amazing app that every time you go to the store, you use it for coupons. It gives you discounts. And I was like, OK. And, and, I, and, and they said, we've been using it for three years and we've saved, oh, it must be at least $300 by now. And I said, you know, you basically like give it all your personal data for the last few years for $300. <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, but we saved $300. And I'm thinking, okay, this is how these companies work. I get it. I, um, and I mean, I think it's just that people are very blasé. I mean, I don't think my parents are, are dumb people at all. I just think that people don't sense the, the value of their data. And by the way, I, I say this as like someone who, of course, is using Google and Facebook and Amazon and so forth. So like, I might be laughing at everyone else's habits. I'm just doing it um, on different sites. All right. Any uh, any any final thoughts or, or words about this before we head into picks? Yeah, I think um, I guess if I were going to throw any advice out there, it would be if you're first on your own. Um, I guess I'll say two things. Number one, you're probably going to default to something like hourly billing. So you might as you uh, go on, I would certainly recommend have kind of a plan for how you might improve your billing, make it more predictable. And then eventually probably you want to get away from doing the hourly model just because you will cap out at how much you can earn doing that way. So it's not that there's anything wrong with it, especially when you're starting out. Um, but as Jonathan often points out, it creates weird incentives and it is a definite like upper bound on, on how well you can do as a, a business person. And the other thing I'll say is this, when you go off on your own, you might read up on billing models and say, okay, I'm going to bill by the hour and I'm going to invoice everybody net 30. Um, and this is how I'm going to do things. Most companies, a small company may agree to the stuff you're saying, a medium company, maybe, or maybe not. An enterprise is going to be like, that's cute, but here's how we pay contractors. So have an established way, have an established set of billing models, but understand that everything about your billing model from the terms, um, you know, to when things are paid and by whom, and um, just about anything you could think of, all of this is negotiable and you may wind up using it as a negotiation point and how you use it is really going to vary by how much you need the work and how much the client needs you. So have your standard way of doing things, but understand that to get business, you're often going to have to be sort of flexible and that you're going to have to negotiate. So those would be my big takeaways for billing models. Yeah, I'll just mention along those lines. So I just uh, um, landed a big new client uh, in the US for training and I'm very excited about it. And as part of the whole onboarding process, they said, and in their contract, it also said, you will only invoice us using such and such a company's invoicing system. 
I was like, you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. So basically- That's a new one. I've never seen that. <laughs> oh, it was ridiculous. So I had to go to this SaaS app, which of course is written terribly and is very hard to use. I had to register. Thank goodness if you send fewer than 50 invoices a year with their system, it's free. So like saving grace is there. But like, really, really? But I decided, you know what? They're going to be paying me well. They say they want two courses this year. They want two courses next year. Fine. Um, but but like, yeah, this is the sort of thing that just was not worth arguing with them about because I'm not going to take on a Fortune 100 company's billing department. I know I will lose, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you'll have your standard things and you'll say, but this is my standard. And they'll say, and our standard is you do it our way if you want to get paid. And you say, okay, sounds good. And you move on. <laughs> um <laughs> But do, do what you can to, to have these sorts of standards. Also, it makes you look really good if you say, this is the way that I work, um, as opposed to, well, I don't know, with you, I could try it this way, try it that way. Um, at least claim to have some sort of policy, even if you're a one-person shop, um, and it, it'll, it'll come off looking good. That is a great point. Absolutely. You look so much better if you say, this is how I do things. Even if you don't wind up doing them exactly that way, it's great during the sales conversation to be able to articulate how you normally work with clients, because then it makes it look like you normally work with clients. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, with my last thousand companies making a billion dollars or more. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, Eric, let's do the picks. What you got? All right, so I'm going to throw it, as I said, million-dollar consulting. If you're out there and you're looking to go freelance and, and you're, you're thinking part of that especially might be true consulting where people pay you for your opinions rather than labor, um, and especially in that case, it's a great book to read. Um, it was one of the more influential books that I read uh, as a consultant. Um, and then the other one, I will just throw another pick out to coming to write for us at Hit Subscribe. If you like writing blog posts um, about technical topics, you know, from development to DevOps to monitoring, all these types of uh, things. We have a lot of um, blog posts that you can write for us and make a little bit of money and get your name out there. So uh, feel free to reach out. I'll include the author uh, or apply to be an author page in the show notes. Excellent. And I've got uh, one pick. So you might have heard that there's a very popular show called Hamilton out there. Um, I know, I know. It's like, it, it'll be very popular one of these days. Trust me. So uh, my wife and I actually saw it in London in, back in February. And as I said, we're recording this in June. Um, my favorite part of seeing in London, by the way, was when the king comes out, everyone cheers. Definitely like a high point of the show, uh, watching it with, with people not, not, who are not American. Um, I decided before watching the show that I was going to read the book upon which it was based. So however many months later, I finally finished the book. And so I feel like I can recommend it to people who like history, have a great deal of patience, and are willing to wade through a bunch of American history minutiae. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating, if a really, really long haul to such a degree that every so often I'd mention the book to my family and they'd be like, enough, enough, just tell us when you finish the book. So I told them I finished the book. There's since been silence, but I'm, I'm sure grudging respect. It's a long book, but it's really very cool stuff um, and has definitely made me think both about American history and about sort of the nature of government and democracy in general. So Hamilton, the book. Um, and if you see the show beforehand, there will be certain passages you read in the book and you're like, oh, why is my head singing? Because you saw the show. Anyway, <laughs> with that in mind, uh, Eric, thanks as always. Thank you all for listening. If you have suggestions for topics or guests for the show, we will be delighted to hear from you. 
contact us via our show page and our show notes. And we will see you next week on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.